Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for lovely worship today. Turning your Bibles to the songbook, Psalm Song 130. Psalm or Song 130. Psalm 130 is called a Song of Ascent. These songs are found in Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. They are the songs that the ancient Israelites would sing as they were marching their way to Zion, as they were going up for the festivals in Jerusalem. They were songs to be sung as they were ascending to the place of praise. Songs for the pilgrims going to the place of praise. Look at verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. To be human is to be in trouble. Job's anguish is our epigraph. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward, Job says. Sometimes we feel like this songwriter. Sometimes we feel like we're drowning in a watery chaos of grief and suffering and anguish and sorrow. And there's so little, isn't there, that we can actually do to protect ourselves from suffering and losses. They are as inevitable as old age and wrinkled skin and aching bones and fading memories. Am I hitting any chords today? We want to have absolute control of our lives. And we succeed most of the time. We have so many things ready at our disposal in Western civilization. We have good medical care and education and comfortable homes and entertainment and good jobs. And therefore, we have the power, each of us, to get most of what we want in life. But that only makes it all the more painful, does it not, when we find ourselves drowning with the psalmist in a sea of suffering. Loss deprives us of that all-wanted sense of control, doesn't it? Cancer ravages and violence erupts and divorce devastates. Unemployment frustrates Death strikes so often with little warning, and suddenly we are forced to face our limitations and our weaknesses face to face. We wonder, what's going wrong now? We resent the intrusion of unpredictability in our schedules, the inconvenience the derailment. It wasn't something that we were planning on, and so we look to God with the psalmist and we say, why me? Why now? We ask. I want you to notice three things this morning in this song of ascent in Psalm 130, a beautiful little song. First of all, the first word is cry. I want you to notice those first verses. He is crying to God. Out of the depths, I have cried to thee, O Lord. The first word 
is cry. The psalmist by, begins by speaking of the pain of the pilgrims as they go to praise. Out of the depths I have cried to thee. Now you'll know in scripture that sea or waters or depths is evil. You remember creation, we began with this watery chaos, and that's not good. And, and God calls creation in order at the watery depths, and that is good. You remember? Or you remember in Revelation 21, when John the, the apostle sees a new heaven, new earth, he says, there is no longer any sea. The depths aren't good in Scripture. The depths are the unknown, the dark, the chaos of water. Listen to Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary with crying. The first word is cry. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice, to my supplications. That's what ancient Israel wanted, and that's what we want today. A God with ears. A God who listens. Oh, it's such a familiar passage, Exodus 3, when, when Moses is at the burning bush. God says, I have heard the cries of my people. The God of the Old Testament is a God who hears and responds to the cries of his people. Even when they don't think he's listening, he is a God with ears. That's what he says in these early verses. Let your ears be attentive. Listen to my cry. He's in the depths of despair and depression, and he's drowning, and there's darkness, and a moment of loss, the psalmist says, cry. God, I cry to you, and I want you to hear me. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's divorce for you. Maybe it's infertility. Maybe it's sexual abuse. Maybe it's failure. Maybe it's pressures on every side, but you feel like that songwriter this morning, the waters are rising, they're up to your neck, and you say, oh God, lend me your ear and hear the cries of your child. Nicholas Volterstorff, Noah Porter professor of philosophical theology, theology at Yale Divinity School, Received a phone call, he'll never forget, 3.30 on a Saturday afternoon, a bright sunny day, a call that forever changed his life. Mr. Volterstorff, yes. Is this Eric's father? Yes. Mr. Volterstorff, I have to tell you some bad news. Yes. Eric was climbing on the mountains today and he's had an accident. Yes, a very tragic accident. Yes, Mr. Volterstorff, I must tell you that Eric is dead. You must come quickly. Eric is dead. Volterstorff writes, For three seconds I had the resignation of peace. I picture myself cradling, cradling the limp body of my boy and offering it up to someone, to some being, to God. And then cold, burning pain. He writes, it's the neverness. The neverness is what's so painful. 
He will never be here with us again. He will never come and sit at the table. He will never laugh with us. He will never travel with us. He will never live to see his brothers and sisters get married. The rest of our lives there will be without him. It is only our own death that can stop the pain of his death. A month, a year, five years, I could count and calculate, but it is the forever of death that is impossible for me. Job 7, as a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to the grave does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. One small misstep on a hike and neverness. Volterstorff writes, he says to God, I'm at an impasse with you. God, you have brought me here. From my earliest days, I have heard of you. And from my earliest days, I have believed in you. I have shared in the life of your people. I have shared in their prayers, and I have shared in their songs. I have shared in their work, and I have strained with them listening for your voice. And I have longed with them and leaned into your presence. Oh, it was good then. But now noon has darkened. As fast as she could say, he's dead, the light has dimmed. And where are you, O oh God, in all of this darkness? I learned to see you in the light, but in the darkness I don't seem to find you. Had I never looked for you, or had I looked but never found you, this would be easy. I would not then feel the pain of your absence. Maybe it's not your absence. Maybe it's your troubling presence that bothers me. Will my eyes ever adjust to this darkness? Will I ever find you in the dark? Not in the occasional streaks of light, but in the mass darkness. Will I ever find you? Has anyone ever found you? And when they find you, do they like what they see? Are there songs for singing when the light has gone dim? The songs I learned in church were all songs of praise and thanksgiving and repentance. Or in the dark, is it best to sit in silence? These songs of ascent of ancient Israel, even as they were going to worship, were songs of sorrow. They were songs of crying. Oh God, I cry, hear me from your depths. The worst thing in the world is to cry for help and imagine no one can hear your cry. To cry out to God and, and feel as if he is a God with no ears who does not hear. There is nothing in this whole song that's petty or small. There's nothing in here that robs us of our humanity when we suffer. There are no glib or smart answers or cheap solutions. There are no hasty Band-Aid treatments to wipe around our wounds. There is neither prophet nor priest nor psalmist with quick cures for our suffering. There's nowhere in here where it says take a vacation or, or take this pill or, or pick up a new hobby. But rather the suffering is raw and lifted up even as we go to worship. Oh, hear my voice, oh God, I cry. Look how many times 
God's name is used in this song. It's, it's remarkable. It's just eight verses. Look, look at verse 1. O Lord, verse 2, Lord. Verse 3, Lord, Lord. Verse 5, Lord. Verse 6, Lord. Verse 7, Lord, Lord. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Eight times we hear the cry for God. When he knows nothing else, he knows the name of the God that he wants to hear his cries. We identify with this songwriter who knows nothing much more than the name of God and his raw emotions, and he gives them, and he cries out to God with all honesty. One lady writes, I'm sitting alone and thinking that suicide would be easier than this. My husband died 14 months since Ed's sudden death. He was 55, married 37 years. We did everything together. Ed's funeral was the biggest funeral the town had ever seen. But where are all those people now? The couples we socialized for years, they, they dropped me like a hot potato. Don't they realize I'm the same person and I still want to be with them, with my friends? I've joined a golf club. I'm volunteering one day at the hospital. But the lonely hours, the absence of Ed is more than I can take. The psalmist feels like that. Oh, Lord, the water is rising. It's all the way up to my neck. It's the depths that surrounds me. Will you hear my voice? Oh, God. Some of you here this morning or some of you watching by way of television, you're in that treading water stage, and this song is a song of your heart this morning, and you know the pain when you cry to a God and you hope that your God has ears. Here's a, a second word in this song. It's, it's the word forgiveness. The word forgiveness. The first word is cry. The second word is forgiveness. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The next thing in this movement of the song, the, the first stanza is about sorrow and crying, and the second stanza is about forgiveness. Even as he cries out to God, he realizes he has no claim on God. God is holy and righteous and other, and the songwriter is a sinner. He realizes to whom he speaks, he has no right to speak that he is a sinner speaking to the sinless, that he is unrighteous speaking to the righteous, and so he reminds the one to whom he speaks. In our master-servant relationship, our covenant relationship, I realize that that which is sinful has no union with that which is sinless. It's a powerful portrait of God in this song. He is not far away. He is not indifferent. He's not rejecting the suffering of his people, but rather God is loving and merciful. God is forgiving. God is not stingy. God is ready to experience the pain of his people, and God seeks the hurting and the maim and the wandering and the lost, and God woos the rebellious and the confused and the sinful. 
I like his words. God, if you kept careful accounts, who could stand? If you kept the books with a sharp pencil, if you marked all of our iniquities and kept the record, oh God, who would ever be able to stand in your presence? Of course, the answer is obvious to the songwriter, and the answer is obvious to us. No one. Oh Lord, should you write down all the iniquities? Who would be able to stand? In reality, we all know how she felt, don't we? There was a moment of passion. A trap was set. I don't know how long it took to lure her there, whether it was moments or months. I don't know, but it was all set up, though I can't be sure how long it took. And the moment she let go of her unbridled passion with someone other than her husband, the Pharisees jumped out from behind the buildings, and the man was allowed to flee since he was in on the deal. And she was dragged before Jesus, and they said, here she is, red-handed. Now, what do you want us to do? Your call, Rabbi. It was a trap. It was set. The scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the religious people brought her right out in front of Jesus, right out in front of the people to set him straight. Now, what do you think, Lord? What will we do? Hey, Jesus, Moses says we ought to stone her. What do you say? Imagine there's some grabbing for rocks at the moment in Jesus we're told, sort of kneels down and begins to doodle in the dirt with his finger. And what he writes, I don't know. I like to think that he began to list the iniquities of those holding rocks. And he stood up and said, whoever doesn't have any sin in his or her life, I'd invite you to cast the first stone. My mind, if I imagine this scene, there's a thud of the first drop rock, and then there's a second thud, and then there's just this roaring thud, this chaos of drop stones as Jesus turns to the woman and says, now, where are your accusers? And she says, there's no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I accuse you. But he does add, go and sin no more. The shutters swing open. There's whispering in the marketplace. The whole city holds its breath. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. God, if you kept careful accounts, who could stand? You see, the psalmist knows not only does God have ears to hear, but he also has a merciful spirit, and God is. And God is merciful not because our sin is no big deal. Our sin is a really big deal. But God is merciful because the economy of God, the cross, is on its way. And the death of the very one who doesn't cast a stone in his shed blood, we find our redemption. Yes, God hears us when we suffer. And yes, God forgives us when we fail. I wish this morning for you that you could understand the power of the forgiveness of God. 
I wish you could understand that which cost God his only son. I wish this morning that you could really feel the freedom that God wants you to feel when he says, I remember your sins no more. I wish this morning that you realize that we had, by his own choice, a forgetful God who remembers their sins no more. As far as the east is to the west and into the depths of the sea, I have cast their sins. I wish you and I understood the cross that well. I wish we could understand with the psalmist what it means when God is merciful. For you and I to understand this morning the the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God would be the removal of a, a thousand worlds from our shoulders. It would be to receive wings and be able to fly in this life, to be able to, to forgive others who wrong us. And they don't deserve our forgiveness even as we have not deserved God's. Yes, there's the word cry. and There's the word forgiveness. But there's a third word in this wonderful little song of ascent. And that is the word hope. Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In his word I do hope. More than a watchman for the morning... More, indeed, more than a watchman for the morning. Oh, Israel, here's our word again, hope in the Lord. For the Lord, there is loving kindness with him. There's abundant redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's drowning. He cries out to a God with ears. He remembers that God doesn't mark all of his iniquities. And then he has hope. I'm not very good at waiting, are you? The word wait is used way too much in Scripture. I'm not even going to do a study on it because I'm afraid what I will find. I've read enough to know I don't want to know about waiting in Scripture. I don't do good in waiting rooms at the doctor's office. I, I waited eight hours for a plane in Dallas. I don't do good waiting. Do you? The psalmist believes if he can wait in the midst of the trauma and the trouble that he is longing for the hope of God. Notice he says, more than the watchman. Indeed, more than the watchman. The image is this. Ancient Israel has watchmen on the wall, and it's dark, and it's night, and they had the night shift. It's the unfortunate shift because all you have is the light of the torch, which makes you more vulnerable to your enemy, and you don't know what's creeping or crawling in the darkness or the enemy of the army surrounding the city, and you are to watch and to cry and to awaken everybody at the armies approaching in the darkness of night like they always do. And so he says, I'm I'm longing for God more than a watchman longing for the morning. Yes, more than the watchman on the wall sleepily longing for the morning. I long for the hope of God. We join ancient Israel, don't we? In the midst of our grief, we wait. And nighttime for the watchman is scary time, and nighttime for you and for me is scary time. It's when we toss and turn and fret and remember all the things we haven't done that we need to do. 
all the folks we've slighted and all the things we would do differently. Look at verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For there is loving kindness with him and abundant redemption. He will redeem all Israel from his iniquities. It's true, the biblical writers, especially the New Testament writers, use the word hope in a way that the world never uses the word hope. For the world, hope is wishful thinking that tomorrow will be better than today. For the world, that's all it is. Wishful thinking that tomorrow will be better than today. It's not true for Paul and the New Testament writers. For us, hope is the empty tomb of Jesus. It's not wishful thinking. It's historical certainty. It's apocalyptic power. It's redemption of God that occurs in the empty tomb of Jesus, which isn't a story about the solitary emptiness of one tomb, but rather it's a story about the inauguration of the age of the resurrection and the emptiness of the tomb of all who say, Jesus is Lord. There's nothing uncertain about the word hope in the New Testament. It is an anchor of certainty in the empty tomb of Jesus. Three words, cry, forgiveness, and hope. Hope. What a wonderful, wonderful word. Let's pray. Oh God, you are the God who redeems and we rejoice in that redemption. There's some here this morning for whom those words ring true. There's some here this morning who find themselves in that chaotic dark water. The depths are there and they cry out to God and they feel unheard and they want the God with the ears, just like the songwriter. There are others who resonate with those pilgrims climbing the hill to Jerusalem and they want to rejoice in the forgiveness of God and they are thankful that you are merciful and forgiving. And yet, God, there are others of us who need that last word, the word hope. Hope of a certain redemption in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning or someone watching by way of television that this is her day or his day to say yes to the hope of the empty tomb of Jesus that today he or she would come and claim it. Maybe there are others who need to be a part of a church family that preaches a God with ears, forgiveness for our souls, and hope in the resurrection of our Lord. And in his name we pray, amen.